0: everyone. You may be seated. <laughs> the Bible itself, Hamishachum <laughs> Tara, the five books, are a fascinating work that is the core. It is the trunk from which all the branches of Judaism understands its values and its lessons. Rabbinic literature, the Mishnah, the Talmud, Maimonides' responses, ethics that we deal with today, all stems from this canon and the words that are incorporated within it. But often in the Torah, we can learn just as much from not only the words that are found within each page, or on top of the parchment, but we can learn equally by the words and the emotions that are omitted. The example that I've given on numerous occasions comes from the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, when God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love, take Isaac. And then later, after the almost murder of his son, in an attempt of sacrifice he says, I now know that you are a God fearing person, Kilo Hasachta at Bincha Mimeni. You have not sacrificed your son, your only son for me, omitting the word love. That's just one of a handful of examples throughout the Torah that teaches us that the omission of words can teach us just as much as the inclusion of words. But what's interesting in the parsha that we read today in Miketz which continues on to Parshat Vayigash is it's probably the most detailed narrative in the entire Torah. By detailed narrative what I mean is there are no gaps. Traditionally in the Torah when we read the story of Rebekah when we read the story of Leah or Rachel or any of these people in our history that we take of step by step there are a lot of gaps. And perhaps those gaps are a result of scribal issues. Perhaps they're gaps of how the Torah was formed. But in this narrative of these two parshiot together, Miketz and Vayigash, there's no gap. It continues with every jot and tittle. Every example and every detail. Nothing is left to the imagination because God tells us every detail in the Torah exactly as it happened in this particular story of the brothers coming to find their other brother, who they sold off into slavery, Joseph, but not knowing it was him. Every detail is told. Every word is shared. But there's a word that's missing when the revelation is finally made at the very beginning of the next parashah, which is a continuation of this narrative, that to me is incredibly telling. It's in parashat Vayigash, Joseph puts his brothers through an incredible test, sends them back and forth. He asks all of these questions very coyly about whether his father is still living and how is his blood brother Benjamin, how is everyone doing. He sends them back and forth. He sets them up as if they've committed a crime. And then finally, he can't take it anymore. He missed his family, so he turns to his brothers who had no idea that it was he, Joseph, and he said... I am Joseph, your brother. Aoda v'ichai. Is dad still alive? And then the omission is so blaring. Because what happens is, the text teaches us these words. Lo yachlu nototo ki mipanav. The brothers could not answer Joseph because they were absolutely dumbfounded. They hugged. They cried, but what was missing? what was missing was an apology. An apology from perhaps Yosef for his behavior, in treating his brothers in a way that he made him them to feel inferior, while he tried to promote himself and being superior. Or how about an apology from the brothers to Yosef, and while you might have made us feel inferior and caused bad feelings. We had no right to put you through such pain and punishment or to torture the rest of our family and our father in particular. Why is it that the text that gives us every single detail in this narrative specifically leaves out any words of apology between Yosef and his brothers in the narrative? This Jewish year in our congregation we have been focused on the study of ethics in our adult education, in a host of different venues, and even here from the BIMA. So the question I posit with you today is, is there an inherent ethic of apology? And is that ethic connected to our inherent desire, our need, when something has happened to us, when something wrong has occurred by means of another person, To hear those words of I'm sorry as a source of healing. And when it doesn't occur, does the pain continue to linger? Could the words of apology serve as a remedy to the wounds that we feel in our emotions and in our hearts? Why is it that that remedy is so difficult for so many different people in the world to apply to an emotional wound Another. There are a few instances where we feel a gap, pain, issue from someone not apologizing. I'd like to point out three to you through popular culture that might resonate and perhaps incorporate in us a response and a responsibility towards the ethic and the omission that we found in the text. I was just a few years young when Richard Nixon resigned from office. So I don't have any memories of reading the newspaper or watching the television or knowing exactly how it went down. But I do enjoy history. And I do enjoy learning about presidents today. So I have spent significant time learning about President Nixon and what he did to the presidency and the pain that he caused this country and America. And what was so fascinating in the psychological research that I have started to unpack on this issue was that what so many Americans were thirsty for and what they came out and actually claimed for and what they wanted from the President of the United States was an unabashed apology. Just a plain old apology for the wrong that he did. But even in his resignation, he didn't apologize to the American people. It took a no-name reporter from Australia by the name of David Frost to conjure up a four-part series where he would interview Richard Nixon. And it wasn't until the last 20 minutes of those four hours of interview that he was able to evoke some part, some notion, of an apology from the president with a look in his eye that was really all that the American public wanted. So much so that the other three parts of the series that he got funding for and took a tremendous amount of resources in order to get up never were aired, but only the one hour segment that has towards the end because of how it was edited, Nixon's reflection and somewhat of an apology for the wrong that he did that brought some level of solace to those in the government and others who were so pained by the actions of Watergate. Just a few years ago, during the Video Musical Awards, the VMAs, there was a young singer by the name of Taylor Swift, an incredible pop phenomenon, who received an award that night. But a particular singer by the name of Kanye West didn't think that she was deserving of the award. So instead of allowing her her moment of glory and receiving the award and the accolades that came with it, Kanye West stormed the stage, took over the microphone, and what seemed like a moment of hysteria claimed, I'm glad that you won or something to this regard, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but this award really belonged to Beyonce, another entertainer, and you don't deserve to have it causing her tremendous humiliation in front of the entire watching world and embarrassment. A few days later, when the world condemned this embarrassing action, Kanye West was found on Larry King Live and Jay Leno in tears, remorseful, blaming all of these actions on the recent death of his mother. But what was blatantly missing from those interviews was his directive into the camera where he looked directly in the camera and what didn't happen was when he said, Taylor Swift, I want to sincerely apologize to you for the hurt and pain that I've caused. It was wrong, regardless of what's happening in my personal life. And whether I think you were deserving or not, no one deserved to cause you that pain. And please accept my sincere, my thoughtful apology. Instead, we fell on the sword, of my mother's death and other instances in his life that caused this behavior. So the apology was not the apology that Taylor Swift needed. I'll give you one more example that happened this past week in the National Football League. But this was actually an example of something happening in a positive way, perhaps a lesson we can learn from. The Houston Texans were playing the Tennessee Titans in a rivalry. And one of the best receivers in the league, a guy by the name of Andre Johnson, was up against one of the best safeties in the league, a guy by the name of Cortland Finnegan, a scrappy and tough player who pushed and shoved very often on the receiver on the line. It got very tense between Johnson and Finnegan, a lot of trash-talking, fighting, and yanking, until eventually Johnson, who's a very respected, low-profile, soft-spoken receiver who really produces on the field, ripped off the helmet of Finnegan, ripped off his helmet, and began to take blows at Finnegan's head. Instantly, both players were ejected from the game. Immediately, when the video cameras came back to the locker room and the entire team had assembled for its mandatory team meeting, before they even take off their pads, Andre Johnson said to his teammates and to his coach, I want to apologize to all of my team to all of my coaches for my behavior. I should never have done that. I let my evil inclination get the best of me, and I'm sincerely sorry. I hope you can accept my apology." His team applauded for him. Because he didn't say it was because of how he pushed me or because of what he said to me or what had happened. He said, I let my team and I let my coaches down, and I'm sorry. He didn't wait till a press conference. He didn't wait till he could be in front of the media. He didn't give reasons for everything this person said that was actually warranting, perhaps, a push or a shove. But instead, he just apologized to those he let down in a sincere and genuine way. I'll tell you personally, when my wife does something wrong, when someone in the synagogue office does something wrong, when someone on the synagogue board does something that I think isn't right – I don't waste very much time telling them where I think their shortcoming was, how I think they could have done it better. And sometimes I find myself having to hold myself back and craft my words in a way so that they're constructive and I'm thinking of their sensitivities. But I'll tell you very honestly, when I make a mistake, when I cause others to be in a compromising position, when I don't do my responsibilities at home, it's so much harder for me to look another person in the eye and say, I messed up. I'm sorry. I let you down. It's easy for me to say, the reason that happened is because of this. Because this person didn't do what they were supposed to do. Or that person didn't do what they were supposed to do. Or I didn't pick up the kids because you didn't remind me to pick up the kids or leave a note. And we didn't, we didn't talk about our schedules. That's easy to do. But it's very hard to look someone in the eye and say, I'm sorry. It was my mistake. I messed up. I let you down. I hope you can forgive me. That's the omission that we see in the interaction between Joseph and his brothers. The omission of an apology even for them. They couldn't utter the words and we hear the utterance of every single word in this dialogue. And this narrative back and forth. Why is it that it's so hard for them to get those words out? And why is it that those simple words, as painful as it is to say, are so therapeutic to the wounds of a pained and bruised soul and emotion? Why is it that we are that way? On Hanukkah, we light the menorah, the hanukkah and there's one candle that stands taller than all the rest, called the shamash. The reason that it stands taller is because it reminds us that there will be moments in life when we have a responsibility to stand with our back straight, to hold our neck high, and to do what is right even if it's not popular, to do what is challenging even if it's hard, to do what is moral even though it might not come naturally. That's the lesson of that tall candle in the shamash, telling all the other candles that it lights. What is the right thing to do? There's not a person in this room who hasn't made a mistake, who hasn't done something wrong, who hasn't caused an emotional pain or bruise to a spouse, to a child, to a parent, to a sibling, to a coworker, to a loved one. Not a one of us. And I bet you there are a lot of people in this room that have a gap in the dialogue when it comes to the issue of apology. A lot of people who can blame others, who can find reason, but perhaps can't find the courage to look another in the eye and say, I treated you wrong. I did something that caused you pain. For that, I'm sorry. I don't offer excuses. I don't offer reasons. I don't offer swords to fall on. I offer sincerity and reflection. When we see that missing in the text, we know that the pain to Joseph and the pain to the brothers is a real pain, a live pain, a pain that could have been remedied, not totally healed, but remedied through the words of I'm sorry. And the Shabbat of Hanukkah, let us be like the shamash. Let us stand tall, let us stand straight, let us be a light to others, by taking the gaps in our conversation and filling them in with words that will make a difference to others. And by doing so, may we be bright like a beacon. May others see that inspiration and touch others' lives with those flames to make a difference so that our narratives never have gaps but rather have meaning. Amen and Shabbat Shalom. We continue our service. Page 155, the Chazan leads us in the Kaddish.